Can you keep a secret? I'm trying to organize a prison break. I'm looking for, like, an accomplice. <laughs> We'd have to first get out of this bar, then the hotel, then the city, and then the country. Are you in or are you out? I'm in. Okay. I'll pack my stuff. Get your coat. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> right. I hope you've had enough to drink. Yeah. It's going to take courage. Two American strangers find comfort and connection with each other in Japan. Listen as we talk about pump thrusting to the locomotion, why bonus tracks are annoying on Spotify, and killing people with Rocky Road. Then we find out if Lost in Translation stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Konnichiwa! I am Alan Noah, and I am one of your hosts for the Test of Time podcast, and I am joined, as always, by you, James Briefson. Or I guess it would be just Jameson? Is that right? Um, Briefson? Okay, sure. Uh, thank you, Al, and it's good to be here. We're talking Japanese because today we're going to be discussing the 2003 film Lost in Translation, in which uh, Bill Murray and uh, Scarlett Johansson's characters find themselves in Tokyo. Right, 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 right. And I'm excited to talk about that movie. I'm really, really looking forward to hearing your thoughts because you said you'd never seen it before. But before we get into Lost in Translation, I felt like we should maybe talk about the strike or actually the strikes plural uh, because the actors guild and the writers guild are still on strike. And I have worked in television. I have some experience working in the entertainment industry. I was never a part of a guild. Have you been reading a lot of these stories from, from uh, actors and writers who are on strike? Have you been following this at all? I was shocked to find out that actors that I did think made a lot of money are actually very, very struggling actors. Like people that say like, oh, I was uh, like the third on a Netflix uh, series. I was like the third build. And yeah, I'm a waiter uh, because I have two kids and, you know, I need insurance and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wow, I would just assume that those people would be making not millions, not the David Harbour on Stranger Things money, but I would assume they'd be making, uh, you know, good money if they're on these things for all the time but that's what I was shocked about that just how shockingly uh you know one percent but when we talk about the one percent there's also the two percent the three percent the four percent and you know they're, they're okay too but it really seems to be like there's the one percent and then there's like the other like just 95 percent are just down a cliff and there's a couple people that are getting by a little bit Right, right. We collectively as a society, we think everyone in showbiz is super rich, and that's just not the case. And I've been reading some of these stories like you have, and I got to tell you, there's one thing that really feels familiar. It's these stories of people saying that they got hired for a gig, they were really excited to be working in entertainment. And they were shocked at how low the pay was, or in some cases, non-existent. And the line that they were fed is, yeah, 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 that stinks. But 
here's the thing. Once you have this show on your resume, once this is on your IMDb page, then later, next time, then you can use it to make more money. You can probably guess where this is going. That's what they all say. They all say this is going to help you get paid next time. It's just kicking the can down the road. You're going to get paid eventually, they promise. And for a large number of people in front of the camera and behind it, that day just never comes. And so what happens? What happened to me personally is I worked in TV in my 20s. And, you know, I racked up some credit card debt. I'll be honest with you. And at a certain point when I wanted to get married and have kids and buy a house, I was like, I can't do this anymore. And so I left the industry. And that's what happens to a lot of people. Some people stick it out and some people have that big break and, you know, they start making real money, Tom Cruise money, Brad Pitt money. God bless them. Those people are talented. They deserve to be making lots of money. But a lot of people just get burnt out and they leave. The other thing is, you know, who can afford going job to job and not making much money? 20-somethings who are okay racking up some debt. The other kind of people who can do that? Rich kids. Kids who have very rich parents who will pay their credit card bills and they'll be fine. And those people just kind of coast through. And are those people always the best at their job? Maybe? Maybe not? And, you know, that that isn't a problem strictly limited to entertainment. Of course, there's nepotism and uh, favoritism and it's all who you know that happens in every field, in every industry. But these strikes now are really shining a spotlight on some of these problems. And that one thing just really felt true to me personally. Yeah, and I just don't see how they're going to get around the AI juggernaut elephant in the room. I mean, even oh, yeah. if they make some rule like you can't copyright AI stuff uh, or you can't have an AI written script, I feel like these producers, instead of paying someone $200,000 to write a script, they'll get a ChatGPT and not not the one today. I'm talking ChatGPT 7 or 8, write me a script, and then for twenty five grand, I have someone, they script doctor it, and now it's a human script. Whatever I need to pass the threshold of this. But it's, you know, even in my field as well, uh, radiology, like diagnostic radiology, inevitably, I think this stuff's going to be read by computers. And they're not going to get rid of radiologists, but instead of having a room with 25 people in there, there's going to be a room of five people. They're going to kind of go over what the computer thinks and see, you know, double check it. As everyone adjusts to uh, streaming and the television going away and maybe even theaters going away and DVDs and Blu-ray, the income stream is going to change. And I just hope these, uh, you know, these people that dedicate themselves to this business and yet even the, especially the people with families and just, you know, starving people, I hope they they can get something because... If you make a a huge franchise, if you're the producer, you absolutely deserve to have a huge house in the Hollywood Hills. When the film makes $200 absolutely, you you put up the money to make it. But trickle-down economics was was made in, like, the 80s. It's, like, 40 years later. Like, people are still waiting for that trickle. Like, really hasn't happened yet. Any day now, it'll happen. What you're talking about is greed, right? Like, Bob Iger deserves to make a lot of money. I 
of course believe that he you know he's running one of the biggest companies on the planet but he doesn't need to be making so much money that the people who are writing the movies and the tv shows that are making him gazillions of dollars they can't pay their bills there needs to be some equity there that should be something that can be figured out like i understand you know streaming has changed the model and how these companies make money is in flux I I don't know the answer. I mean, I really don't. But it seems like there's enough money to go around where people who are making the content shouldn't be starving. They should be able to pay their bills. I think you nailed it. I mean, I mean at the in the end, it really is. There's an element of absolute greed. Uh, not by everyone sure. there. I'm sure there's people that do want to distribute things. You know, I, I didn't even plan it like that. But as I was mentioning, people who have rich parents and they they do well in entertainment that kind of does lead to writer director Sofia Coppola who I guess would be a nepo baby technically I, I'm not saying that as a slight on her but you know her dad's Francis Ford Coppola nepotism doesn't necessarily uh you know have to be uh, I mean the way you said it nepo baby yes it, it is a yeah, slur yeah, of yeah, sorts yeah. but Sofia Coppola won the uh uh, you know, she won the lottery of, uh, you know, families to be born in if you want to go into film. Uh, but she can't help that. Uh, her first uh, directorial film that made a lot of uh, buzz, this movie, The Virgin Suicides, people didn't say it was a buzzy movie because her name is Coppola. And far from it, in fact, the only thing you knew about this poor woman until The Virgin Suicides was... She's the worst actress in history who destroyed the Godfather films. And, you know, that, that's what she was known right. for for years. And that role she only got because she's a Coppola. It, you know, so it works both ways. And in the end, people are going to judge you on how you did. And, you know, this film uh, it won a lot of awards and it definitely picked up uh, the buzz from The Virgin Suicides. Right. But for anyone who hasn't seen Lost in Translation, it is writer-director Sofia Coppola's film set in Tokyo. The movie follows two characters, Bob Harris, who's a middle-aged actor facing a midlife crisis, and Charlotte, a young woman questioning her marriage and purpose in life. Bob is in Japan to shoot whiskey ads, and Charlotte is there with her husband, who is always busy with his work. After Bob and Charlotte meet, they quickly discover that they have a lot in common and that they enjoy each other's company. They explore the city and their feelings of loneliness together. So this movie had a very small budget. It had to have made its money back, I would think, right? Oh, this movie, it's got to be on one of these lists. I didn't look it up. It's got to be one of the, you know, dollar for dollar, one of the most successful films ever. It was made uh, for $4 million, and domestically, it grossed $44 million, so 11 times its budget, and $118 million worldwide. So, I mean, this film made so much money compared to the investment that was put in. This film also... It revitalized uh, Bill Murray's career again. Because, I mean, he, I would say Rushmore was probably the thing that uh, really revitalized his career at first. But, you know, he was doing Wes Anderson yeah. films. But this film was the first time it was like, this guy should be really considered for an Oscar. And you hear that kind of buzz. Yeah, he was nominated for an Oscar. He didn't win. He lost to Sean Penn. And I haven't seen Mystic River in a long time. I'm sure Sean Penn did amazing in that movie, but come on, Bill Murray in this movie is phenomenal. And I love Bill Murray, so I'm biased, of course, but 
I, I feel like he was robbed. That's his only uh, Academy Award nomination is for this movie, Lost in Translation. Hmm. Uh, and and you didn't see the movie when it came out. You you just weren't weren't into it in 2003. It's just a film I kind of skipped, and uh, it's always on that list. You know, I always want to see it. And the first time I saw it was uh, two nights ago. Okay, all right. Well, let me put you on the spot then. As someone who just saw this movie. How would you categorize it? Like, what genre would you put this movie in? You know, like, action, horror, thriller, it's not any of those. But, like, how would you define it in a word or two? No, I think, actually, I'd call it action, horror, thriller. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Okay. I'd actually probably put it in drama. Even though it could go in comedy, I guess. But um, it's, it's drama, but probably technically comedy. All right, fair. Where would you categorize it? I hate this word, but I feel like dramedy because it, it is very, very funny at parts and also very, very sad and depressing at parts. Friend of the show, Adam Pincus, he and I have had conversations about what qualifies as a comedy and he's gone on rants about Barry, that Max show, that like that show should not be considered a comedy. And, you know, that's a debate for another time. But I think that is sort of a trend now where comedies tend to be somewhat serious or have some serious undertones, usually, not always, with exceptions, but I think I would call it a dramedy. It is not, in my humble opinion, a rom-com, and it is often categorized as such. That kind of gets under my skin a little bit, and Sofia Coppola has described the relationship in this movie as romantic, and I can't really argue with her because she's the writer and director but I might just do that anyway because I don't consider this relationship romantic it's a relationship sure you know in the sense that everything's a relationship you and I have a relationship a a friendship is a kind of a relationship we tend to hear that word and you know assume it's romantic or sexual or whatever And that's not what this movie is. It's not sexual. It's not platonic. I don't really think it's romantic either. I would call it intimate. And I don't know, maybe I'm getting too into the weeds with these words and their definitions and and everything. And I don't make friends when I do that. But I don't know. I think it's it's separate from a rom-com. Well, I think also, just like uh, you were saying, Nepo Baby, I I think uh, rom-com itself has connotations that are more, you know, Matthew McConaughey's a loser, but can Sarah Jessica Parker turn him around? That's often a very fun film. Uh, Rom-com's going to be great, but I I think there is a little bit less... uh, cachet to it. I get what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, rom-com definitely has... A certain connotation, even though technically the denotation of calling this movie a romantic comedy might actually work. I think this movie does sort of defy standard 
categorization. I, I can't think of an example, but every now and again, there's like an action movie and then the star or the director or someone does an interview with Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon or some other Jimmy and is like, this isn't really an action movie. It's also a love story or it's also this or it's also whatever. And then you watch the movie and it's like, nah, dude. That was an action movie. You know, come on. I think a lot of people think that all movies defy categorization, but a lot of them really don't. Lost in Translation, I think, is difficult to to pin down. No, but you can kind of put a couple of Venn diagrams on it pretty easily. Sure. Uh, I think that's it. Um, You had seen this film before. Uh, Have you seen this many times, Al? No, I think I really only saw it once. I'm pretty confident that Courtney and I went to see it in the theater. Uh, This came out when I was living in New York City. We might have gone to the Kipps Bay Theater. We saw a lot of movies there. I remember liking it, and I don't think I've seen it many times. I own it on DVD. It's not shrink-wrapped, so I must have watched it once or twice. But no, it's not a movie that I watch like regularly. I mean, no, I don't think it's the kind of thing like, oh, let's pop in some Lost in Translation and we're going to quote it the whole time, you know. But uh, this film was interesting for me because uh, I've been to Tokyo. I went after residency. Uh, Me and a buddy of mine, uh, we just decided, let's go. Um, And we had no idea what we were doing. Um, We booked a hotel in Tokyo. We had absolutely no guide. Nobody really speaks much English there. In the hotel, they'll speak a little bit. But when we were in this small town, Hakone, nobody spoke any English. My, my buddy and I were making like charades of like a train and uh, more like we were doing the 70s do the locomotion. and kind of looked like we were maybe humping each other a little bit. But uh, <laughs> like, you know, we were kind of more doing like the, the fist pumps, which got, you know, the, the pump thrust, which is sort of like a train locomotion thing. That's what we were doing. And these, these Japanese people were looking at us crazy. But I really experienced a lot of the culture shock that's there. I spent a lot of time in Ireland and England. Of course, the, the, the language is the same. But even going to Europe, where the language is different, Tokyo for us was so different. And even the like little gestures that happen and the, and the habits that happen. Um, that was the first time I ever saw mass face masks. I, I remember my friend and I saw a whole bus and they were like... 15 people with face masks and we're like what the hell is that is this like a zombie film and and someone uh, did tell us later that oh they were probably a bunch of sick people there they were just trying to protect other people small things like that blew us away I loved the scenes early on when uh, Charlotte is just kind of walking around uh, Tokyo just doesn't know what to do that's exactly what we did and we found these Shinto shrines and we went to the same little gambling arenas that she walked through in these arcades and this was filmed obviously on location. They yeah. went to the uh, Shibuya, Shinjuku, uh, Rapungi districts. Uh, it was just like, this was a really interesting like view of kind of what it is like to be a tourist in Japan. You're completely lost. Right. The title of this movie, I think, is brilliant. And there's a scene early on where they show you things that are literally lost in translation when Bob is shooting the whiskey ad the commercial and the director is talking and talking and talking and talking and talking and talking and then the translator says okay he says be intense 
And he's like, ah, there's got to be more to it than that. Then he says, okay, well, when I turn, should I turn from the right or the left? And then the director is talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. Like, no, it was just a, a simple one word answer. Clearly things are being lost in translation. That was my absolute favorite scene of the entire film. And oh, yeah? it absolutely resonated with me because this happened all the time. I did my residency at uh, Maimonides uh, Medical Center in, uh, in Brooklyn. And uh, that, that has a lot of different ethnicities there. So there's a lot of languages spoken. And sometimes you have to use translators if no one on your team speaks that language. And this would happen all the time. I would have some translator speaking the native dialect. And this patient like talks for like two minutes. And the patient says, like, the stomach hurts. Or, or I would say, all right, uh, the risk for the colonoscopy, uh, there might be some uh, upset stomach, uh, there might be a uh, risk of infection, there could be bleeding, and technically there could be death. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, like words. I'm like, no, you, you, you didn't totally just say this. You just said like maybe seven words, and I just spoke like basically a, like a run-on paragraph. So that would happen all the time, but I, you know, I don't know what to do. So I did exactly what uh, what Bob Harris, uh, Bill Murray's character, does. I kind of go, all right. I mean, if you say that, that's what she said. Sure, but lost in translation is not just literal. It's also a metaphor because these two main characters, Bob and Charlotte, they are also lost. They are adrift in the world, in their lives, and it's. Basically, a midlife crisis for Bob and a quarter-life crisis for Charlotte. And I feel like on the podcast, we've seen movies that have both. The first ones that pop into my mind are St. Elmo's Fire for the quarter-life crisis and City Slickers or The Big Chill for the midlife crisis. These are things that we've seen in other movies. You don't usually see them paired together in the same movie. You know, one going through a quarter-life, one going through a midlife. And it works because... These things do overlap, right? Like they are both surrounded by people, you know, in Tokyo, but they feel very alone. And not even just that, like they're married, you know, they they have a spouse that should be their their partner, you know, their ride or die, uh, but not really. So they are in very similar situations, just, you know, at different points in their life where Bob has basically come to terms with it, whereas Charlotte is sort of deciding if she wants to be okay with it and if she wants to come to terms with it or if she wants to exit, basically. Well, you know, I think it's a really interesting uh, take that you say, uh, you know, that it's a quarter-life crisis mixed with a midlife crisis, which it is. The co-stars I thought were fantastic, too. Um, Anna Faris, who really doesn't get the credit she should. for she, She's a really good actress. Uh, everything I've seen her in, I just I really like it. And uh, Giovanni Ribisi, uh, I've always liked him. I, we talked about him in Boiler Room. He, he's another guy. I, I don't think he has the, uh, he's not as famous as he should be, but he, he's very good. I, I was watching uh, the DVD 
one of the deleted scenes it's it's not actually a deleted scene it's an extended scene with uh, Anna Faris when she's doing her press junket and what's in the movie is so goddamn funny when she's talking about what she has in common with Keanu Reeves they both live in LA they both have two dogs and they both love Mexican food so they have so much in common like that's really goddamn funny in the extended scene she's talking about being a nerd in high school Oh my God, let me guess. What? She said something like she liked nature or something. She liked something and she's calling that she was a nerd. No, 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 no. It goes in a very different direction. She says something like she was such a good student that, you know, she always knew she was smart, but it wasn't until she started acting that she realized that she was also pretty. And I mean, it's just delivered with such a straight face. That cracked me up. I was like, come on, really? Was it supposed to be obvious to me? Maybe I'm getting it wrong, but I was like, oh, uh, Anna Faris and Giovanni Rubisi are obviously going to be sleeping together and Charlotte's going to catch them and this is what's going to, you know, something's maybe going to happen with Bob, I don't know. But don't you think a lesser film, it would so obviously have done that? And I'm not even saying that uh, those two characters did not have an affair. It's never really answered and, uh, you know, maybe it happened, maybe not. There's definitely flirtations But um, I feel like it's great that the film doesn't really answer that or or even really go there because that's not the point. That's really interesting. Yeah, this movie's not their story at all. And I, I think that's a fair thing to wonder about. Along those lines, let me ask you, did you think that Bob and Charlotte were going to hook up, that they were going to sleep together? Were you expecting that? No, I actually did not expect it, and I was even surprised at the ending. I mean, as we could discuss that part at the very end. Yeah, um, sure, shoot. Bob tells her he's leaving that day, and there's kind of an unsatisfying uh, goodbye between the two of them, and they go their own separate ways. It really kind of was soured because the night before Bob was going to leave, he happened to kind of pick up this lady at the bar. They have a one-night stand, and uh, Charlotte kind of was a little bit jealous or more like, uh, you know, I thought we were going to hang out. And so uh, they had a kind of a melancholy goodbye. And just as Bill Murray is driving to the airport, he sees Charlotte on the street. He says, stop. And they get out and they have a kiss. Not like, a, you know, Times Square after World War II kind of kiss. But uh, that there is a kiss that is definitely a I love you. This You are a life-changing uh, friend I'll never forget. And, you know, this this is a physical gesture of that. Uh, But I did not expect them to sleep with each other, but I was surprised at the uh, the actual kiss at the end. Why? What was so surprising about it for you? I was just surprised that they actually went there. I, I didn't think you needed to. I didn't think it was necessarily bad because I did think it was just a peck. They decided to cross that line to show, you know, this is not just you're a friend I'll never forget. I found the kiss to be more loving than sexual. I think that's totally, totally fair. Yeah, it, it's not sexual, in my opinion. It's more than you would do with just a friend, but not what you would do with someone who you wanted to sleep with. And I agree with you that these two characters definitely should not have slept together. The fact that she's jealous when he sleeps with the cocktail singer, she's not mad that he cheated on his wife. At no point does she say, hey, you shouldn't have done that. You're married. She's like, well, I guess it makes sense. She's closer to your age, meaning closer to your age than me. You you don't want them to sleep together. He's way too old for her. He's protective of her. And 
That would be wrong. That is just not what their relationship is. And it's not what I, as the viewer, want to see. I don't think it's what they really want out of each other. There's not even a ton of flirting in the movie. There's some, certainly, but it's not like overt. I think they really are just lost and they need connection. And the connection is what they're looking for. Honestly, I think even the kiss isn't the most intimate thing that they share. I think the hug that they share is more intimate. Charlotte starts crying when they hug. That is more meaningful. That is more important. Because they they kiss like two other times in an elevator earlier, and it's just awkward. The kissing is awkward. They they shouldn't even be kissing, probably. But the hug they need. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that. Um, There's a scene that really tells us a lot about this character. And that's when uh, Bob carries Charlotte back to her room. She's totally trashed. She's drunk. And he puts her down in the bed and puts the blanket on her. I like that scene when the way he put her down and the way he looks at her, he wraps the blanket around her. He kneels down and just looks at her. He wants to take care of her. The whole thing with her foot is another example of that. He's making some joke about he had some tightness and then he got a shiatsu massage and now the tightness is gone and it's been replaced with searing pain. And, you know, it's a it's a funny joke. And then she's like, oh, yeah, I'm in pain, too. Look at how I I stubbed my foot. And he's like, that's really bad. And you need to go to the hospital. And he takes her to the hospital. He's looking out for her. And I think that's also a metaphor, right? Like he is in pain in his life, in his marriage and, you know, his general malaise and melancholy and all of that. He's living with it. He's just dealing with the pain. The pain is there. Okay. But for her, he's like, you shouldn't be living with this pain. You should do something about this pain. You're too young. You don't just need to suck it up and deal with it. That's me in my midlife crisis. You in your quarter life crisis, you have a choice. You have youth. You can do something about it. That's sort of symbolic of where they are in their lives and his protective nature of her. I I think what's implied there is he doesn't want her to become like him, even though she could. You know, he wants better for her. He he cares about her enough that he wants more for her. I agree. Um, you know, I, I also wanted to talk about the uh the karaoke scene because I think that scene is great. Like I, I love, love, love that scene. It starts with uh Charlotte's friend Charlie singing God Save the Queen, which is a song that has absolutely nothing to do with romance relationships anything like that then bob sings what's so funny about peace love and understanding again not really a romantic song and then she sings brass and pocket by the pretenders and that is i think the most flirtatious that she ever gets in the movie and you know it's a very flirty song and he's looking at her and you know she looks like scarlett johansson she's beautiful he notices that Uh, And then he sings More Than This by Roxy Music. And that is all about connection and what it means when two people find each other. And I think that really sums up the themes of the movie. And I think I had kind of just forgotten about that scene. And it does so much over the course of just like a couple of songs. I thought that scene was brilliant, expertly staged. 
I like the scene. I have to say that I wish I knew those songs a little better. Like, I loved how you, you're like, oh, this song means this, and this song obviously means this, but whoa, get out the portations. <laughs> when you heard that Pretender song, you were like, it's on. And, you know, I I was not as following it by, by the, uh, you know, subtle gestures of the songs as, you know, you were picking up clues. Oh, okay. Well, Brass in Pocket is a very, like, flirty song, and... um I love listening to Bill Murray sing more than this. That was a bonus track on the soundtrack. It is on Spotify, Just Like Honey by the Jesus and Mary Chain is the last song on the soundtrack officially, but the track length is 12 minutes and 37 seconds because there is 10 minutes of silence after Just Like Honey ends before Bill Murray sings more than this. Like, why do they do that? I I feel like... Bonus tracks kind of don't work in that context on Spotify. Oh, that's that. It's actually 12 minutes on like a CD. If you had that CD, it would say 12 minutes, but you only get like three minutes of music. Yeah, but like that's <laughs> fine on a CD. That's how bonus tracks work on a CD or a tape or a record. But on Spotify, I want to have Just Like Honey by the Jesus and Mary Chain and Bill Murray singing more than this on my playlist just without the 10-minute gap of silence in between them. That I can do without. But whatever. That That is neither here nor there. Um, This is a completely random thing, but it annoys me in movies when characters do this, and I caught them doing it twice in this movie, that no one ever gives a time. Like when Bob is talking with the people from Santori Whiskey, and they're like, all right, we'll pick you up in the morning. And he's like, okay. And then he leaves. Like, what does that mean in the morning? 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 10 a.m.? Like, in the morning is very, very vague. Charlotte invites him to hang out and is like, okay, I'll see you later. What's later? When? Where? Where are we meeting? My room? Your room? The lobby? Like, it it doesn't matter. Like, I I know I'm overthinking and I know it's just me getting hung up on it because I am very type A. And if someone was like, okay, I'll see you later, I'd be like, hold on, I have follow-up questions. How do you define later? You know, it's like... Give me an ice cream, Sam, when you walk into Baskin Robbins. You know, you need to be a little more descriptive than that. Otherwise, you're getting Rocky Road. Well, Rocky Road's great. I know. Well, that's why I guess I would kind of, you know, almost default to that because you get a little chocolate, a little vanilla. It doesn't have uh, nuts in it. Yeah, and there's no vanilla in Rocky Road. Yeah, so you'll kill someone if you default to Rocky Road. (laughs) (laughs) If someone has an allergy. Yeah, eventually you'll kill them. Probably. Um, But let me go back to the ending, because I should have asked you this question when we were talking about that. But what did you think about Bob whispering to Charlotte? What do I think he said to her? Well, that and also just did it bother you that you couldn't hear what he said? Um... No, I I think it's um I think it's akin to uh, to make another famous reference uh, in the office uh, that there's a letter that uh, Jim had written Pam in the tea kettle and you never find out what it is you don't need to know exactly what Jim wrote to Pam you know they're in love I don't need to know was it something like I wish I was 20 years younger I love you I would marry you right now if you said yes uh, come back to New York with me. California, whatever. It could be any of those. It could be something else. I'll never forget you. You're the best thing I ever met. But we already got that from the hug and and the kiss. Like, it doesn't matter. So I'm perfectly fine with not knowing it. Oh, okay. I have to admit, 
I'm surprised that you said that. I was expecting you to say that it was annoying, but uh, okay. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It doesn't bother me at all. Also, by the way, people have like analyzed the audio and there are YouTubes where they've cracked it. There are different videos that come to different conclusions about what he said. Sophia Coppola has said that she doesn't even really know what Bill Murray whispered to Scarlett Johansson. It's sort of just between them. So... It's a mystery. I think it's fine that it's a mystery. In some of those YouTube videos, it's about like you talk to your husband, you tell him the truth or something like that. I can't believe that that's it. I think it's got to be more about her, about Charlotte, not her husband. I think it's something more akin to the lyrics of Brass and Pocket. The line in that song is, I'm special, so special. I think that's what he's saying, that like you're special, you're an amazing person. He sees her. He sees her for who she is. She doesn't know that she's special. I I think it's something along those lines. But I don't care. I'm not going to obsess over it. It's fine to not know. But James, what do you think about the movie as a whole? Do you think that Lost in Translation stands the test of time? Um... This was a really nice film. Uh, I thought it was really good. I I thought it, uh, as someone who has been to Japan exactly once, I thought it really, really took me back to Tokyo. A lot of the feeling, a lot of these small places that that were filmed were really great. The acting was fantastic. It looks like it was filmed for $4 million. It's a mostly dialogue-led film that happens to have a couple nice sceneries. The film's little touches of Japanese culture were really great. Uh, like I said, all the Shinto shrines and her running through these pachinko machine places. I really like the relationship between Bob and Charlotte. You, you know, some of the stuff they say at night, like, once you have children, your whole life changes. Like, okay, yeah, that, that's fine. I enjoyed the film. Um, it reminded me of Japan. I do still remember how to count to 10 now. Do, do you want to hear it? I do. It's uh, Ichi ni san shi go roku shichihashi kuju. Very good. I'm impressed. Thank you. I had a little like whole mnemonic and dance to remember all of those, but uh, I won't do them for you. This is a podcast. Please don't. And our listeners can't see it. But I will say the first one is me and my friends, we, we would just scratch our knees because the first uh, two letters are is itchy knee. So we'd scratch our knees and go itchy knee, five and six. We would say go Roku. You said you weren't going to say it, and then you said it. All right, I did. But uh, let's sum it up by saying 2003's Lost in Translation does stand the test of time. What do you think, Al? Does the film stand up? Oh, absolutely. This is an amazing, amazing movie. I loved watching it. I watched it two days ago. I've been thinking about it nonstop. I really genuinely mean what I said earlier, that it defies classification and also It's just a unique story because there are a million buddy movies about two dudes. There are movies about female friendships. Not enough, but they're starting to be more. There's infinity movies about romantic relationships. There really aren't a ton of movies about non-sexual, non-romantic relationships between a man and a woman. They're friends. They're maybe a little bit more than just super platonic, you know, like we were saying, there's an intimacy there, but name another movie where that happens. I can't think of one off the top of my head. And also, it's not just about a relationship, it's about this kind of 
transient relationship where you meet somebody and they have a huge impact on your life and then you go your separate ways. That happens to everybody. We can all relate to that. We've all had someone that we've met and they had a huge impact on our lives and then they're gone and we never see them again. But they were really important to us for that one day, week, month, whatever. Like that is incredibly relatable. Why aren't there more movies about that? There are movies about that kind of thing where it's a romantic relationship like Titanic, you know, Jack and Rose meet and he saves her life and then he dies. There are movies like E.T. where Elliot and E.T. meet, they change each other's lives and then E.T. flies away on a spaceship. I feel like that's more common. It's like a kid's movie kind of a thing. There's a magical fantasy component, but like it happens to adults in the real world and there just aren't a lot of movies about it. Or they'll have to be elderly, like driving Miss Daisy. And, uh, you know, you're right. Like, if these people are of reproductive age, they must put their genitals together. But uh, this, <laughs> film, uh, this film did not do that. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And I really love the way that you put that. That is fantastic. That's a pickup line. Um, you are of reproductive age. So am I. We must put genitals together. You sounded like Morbo from Futurama just then. <laughs> I, yes, I don't know that, if that's what you were I going think, yeah, for. Yes, I, did, I wasn't trying to, but yeah. Perfect. That, that was a very, very good Morbo. Um, two other just random things that I found very relatable. I've never been to Japan, so I, I don't have that experience. But there's a scene where the fax machine wakes Bob up. It's his wife sending faxes about his study. You know, they're going to redecorate and she wants his opinion. I don't know if I've talked about this before, but when I would go to visit my dad in California back when I was a kid, my bedroom also doubled as his office. You know, this was the 90s. He was in California. He worked with people in New York. They sent faxes. I was woken up every goddamn morning by that fax machine beeping. And so like the look on Bob's face when he's woken up by the fax machine, that was very relatable to me personally. And the whole thing with uh, Bob being harassed by his wife about what color do you like for the study? And she sends him 14 different dark red swatches. And she's like... I like the burgundy the best, but what do you think? And he's like, which one is burgundy? I've been there. I have had that exact conversation with Courtney. Again, just very relatable. There's not a lot of like Bill Murray doing Bill Murray shtick in this movie, but he is still very, very funny. Also, the scene with the prostitute uh, when when she's telling him to lip my stocking and then, you know, he kind of topples over that. That's more, you know, slapstick Bill Murray. And I guess while talking about that, I should say that some people do find this movie offensive because of the Japanese stereotypes and the L's and the R's and things like that. I think that's valid. I could certainly understand why someone from Japan would be bothered by that. Sofia Coppola has said that that wasn't her intention. Just because it wasn't her intention doesn't mean it's not offensive, of course. I get that, but... I still just, I love this movie. I think it's a fantastic film. And yeah, of course it stands the test of time. Absolutely. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about a movie that I assume is very, very different from Lost in Translation. It's a movie called Cobra starring Sylvester Stallone. I have never seen this. What have I signed up for, James? 
let's just say there is a kill count in this film. <laughs> well, I mean, technically, there's a kill count in every film. There's a kill count of zero in Lost in Translation. Uh, there is a non-zero kill count in uh, Cobra. There is a non-zero burning people alive count in Cobra. Okay. I believe his, his last name is Cobretti or something. Oh, okay, because I was about to ask you if there are snakes in it. I don't think so. All right. Well, that'll be a fun time. In the meantime, we love hearing from you guys. Please write to us. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, X, Instagram, and Threads. I guess I'm calling it X. I don't know. Uh, you can email us at testoftimepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about this movie, what you think about platonic relationships, romantic relationships, rom-coms, Japan, Tokyo, Scarlett Johansson's butt, which we didn't talk about at all. Uh, but we want to hear from you. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.